I want to start uh, by just trying to set the stage, if I can, for what's to come tomorrow. I think this is an important conference, something I've been thinking about uh, since 2011 or 2012. But can I just start where I want to start? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, first to the churched, then to the unchurched, first to the religious, and then to the irreligious. Both of them get the gospel. You never get past it, ever get past it. For in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed by faith from first to last. For it is written, the just shall live by faith. I live in the city of Marion, which is a hard city. Four out of five children who attend our schools come from single parents. We have the second highest poverty rate in the state of Indiana. Our roads are broken. Our politics are rife. Factions are contentious. And whenever you gather in the city of Marion, it's remarkable how quickly, even with ministers in the room, the answers turn political, sociological, educational, social, psychological, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation in any situation, however complicated it is. There's certainly more than the gospel, but there's nothing first. That's the first thing. Am I right? We ought to stand for the benediction. But we won't. 1970s, Bell Telephone invented a device known as call waiting. Why on earth, if you had one call, you'd want another one is a mystery to me. But there are some who thrive on this, social people. I bet Dave likes call waiting. I bet he wished he could do it again and have three or four on there. It allows you to be on the phone with one person and then hear a beep. See, it used to be, if you're young, it used to be that when somebody called you and you were on the phone, they heard an annoying beat that meant it was busy, but they changed that. Now when they call you, you hear an annoying beat, and it won't leave you alone until either they hang up or you answer it. This is misery, and they have rigged every phone to do this. You don't even need it in your plan. It's in your plan. If you have buttons, you have call waiting. I think everyone here has received their first call. I wonder if you've heard the second one. You've got a call to preach, a call to lead a church, a call to organize a body of people. That's your first call, but sometimes there's another call that comes later that fits 
within your first call that tells you exactly what you're supposed to do to act out that first call. Now, not everybody gets this, I guess. But if you get it, it really clarifies things for you. Now you know the one thing you're supposed to do more than anything else. And when you know that, you can start admitting to all the other stuff that you're bad at. See, until you get, which is most stuff, until you get that second call, it's like you try to pretend and your whole ministry's B plus on a good day. But when you get that second call, you can say, this is the area, this is the thing I'm going to give my life to. And it's not that you let the other things go. It's that you recruit people now to do the other things because you know the one thing that you're supposed to do. So maybe you've had that first call, but there's a call waiting. The first call comes from God. The second call comes from your times. Thomas Merton said that most people never become great saints for the same reason they don't become great poets. They never get around to being the kind of person that is called for by the times in which they live. That's a remarkable statement. Because it implies that a person can be called by their times as much as by their God. And that second call asks us to step into a gap and be something more specific than just preacher. So if I can, I want to try to interpret some of the times. Let me take a crack at it. The last two elections have revealed to us something about the times in which we live. They are, as William Galston from the Brookings Institute said, revelation that America has never been more closely and deeply divided. What he means by that is there's never been a time in our history when the elections or the contests were so close, and yet the ideologies were so far apart. Since 1920, the first year that women could vote, there were never more than three elections before somebody won by more than ten points. That hasn't happened since 1984 now. There's been eight consecutive elections in which no one has won by more than 10 points. If you go from 1900 to 2000, there were only four elections that were fewer than a four-point spread. But from 2000 to the present, there's been four already, four of the last five. We are closely divided. And the problem is these are not just agendas, these are ideologies. These are futures for the nation. And so the nation feels as if they're picking sides and things are feeling fragile out there. And when the nation turns to solve its problems, 
Around them, they see four institutions that have historically withheld a moral integrity, and all four of these institutions have suffered a loss in moral authority in just the last 20 years. They are the government, the church, the schools, and the law. All four of them are having their own issues right now, and they used to be responsible for holding up the pillars of society. And so when society feels closely and sharply divided, they're looking at the traditional institutions or pillars that they could always go back to and the pillars themselves are crumbling. Hold on, it gets better. (laughs) Most people at this time right now pack it in. You can see what I mean. They're simply going to say, man, I'm going to win the few that I can and wait till Jesus comes. Because, you know, that's always the escape when Jesus comes. Can I remind us tonight that we are not a mystical religion. We are a prophetic religion. We aim to transform the communities in which we live. Our goal is not simply to collect people into our churches. It is to say things that rattle the foundations of our cities until they are renewed. So that means we live in between these two worlds. This world where God is speaking through the prophets and this world that we call the real world. But can I remind you that the word through the prophets is the real world. Karl Barth said, every time you preach, you are standing in between two advents, the first and the second. Jesus came once and he's coming again. So when you read something from the prophets or something from the scriptures, you're not reading words that someone is shouting from the past. You're reading words of the risen Christ who is shouting them from the future. <laughs> he's talking from where you're going. So you don't have to convince people this is true. Just say it. They'll see. Because he's right about the way things are going. So our job then is to be deeply embedded in Scripture to discern the voice of God when he speaks, to untangle it from our own voice, and to speak faithfully, prophetically, to our cities and to our people. I think there are two things happening right now uh, in our times, trends that I see. And you, you may or may not, agree with this, and if you don't, um, Dave will be available right afterwards. Where did he go? There he is. All right. The first trend that I see in the last few years, this has happened for a while, but it's been, it's been happening faster right now, is uh, that um, religion, specifically the Christian religion, is slowly being moved to the margins of society. 
Now, there's all sorts of different theories on this. Charles Taylor says, no, we're not being kicked out. They're just letting other religions and worldviews in, so the living room is cluttered with voices. But others, like Walt Brueggemann, say, no, there is a marked decrease in the number of religious symbols in the public square. No, religious institutions are being forced by government policies to do things that violate their conscience and their faith. So there's two different views on this. Some say we're just being crowded, and others are saying we're being moved. But I'm saying... What difference does it make? We have less pull today. It's as David Wells said, God is not absent, but he's weightless. He bears inconsequentially on the affairs of the public. That's the first problem. I probably don't need to prove it, so I won't. The second thing I see, you guys, is that over in the margins is a slow and steady rise among the faithful. They're finding each other. The prophet Micah spoke of a flock within a flock. Ezekiel talked about a shepherd that gathers his sheep from all ends of the earth. Isaiah talked about a tiny shoot that comes up from a dead stump. Paul spoke of an Israel within an Israel. And so some people today are talking about a church within a church. Some people are talking about a holiness movement within a holiness movement. This is remarkable. I'm reading stuff right now about union with Christ from Reformed writers. If you're Reformed, I'm sorry, see Dave. <laughs> and it, this, they're arguing from the writings of John Calvin. And I'm like, dude, do you have any idea what you are letting loose when you write this stuff? And I'm not saying Calvin didn't say it. I'm just saying nobody wrote like that 10 years ago. They're saying things that holiness people have been saying for a long time. And if you follow the trajectory of those thoughts, they start to come closer together. What I'm saying is in any generation, God will not be without witness. He will find them anywhere. And they're not even looking for one another. They're not talking to one another. They're going to conferences or they're reading books or they're going to churches or coffee shops and they run into one another and they start talking. And when they talk, they find out that the same thing that's happening in them is happening in others. There's a deep-seated passion, a return to scripture as sacred text a devotion to the teachings of Jesus. They have different values for their children. They spend their money differently. They're going to countries their parents only prayed for. <laughs> they're revitalizing dead churches, and they're doing it with a gospel that sounds remarkably close to one another, even though they are from different camps. 
It seems like God is pulling together a flock. Now it's important that you see that these two things are both happening because if you only get one of them, you'll misunderstand the times. So if, if you're... If you're used to being in the middle, let me translate that, if you're over 50, if you're over 50, help you Jesus, but you grew up in a time when your faith was at least tacitly understood by the public, and in your lifetime, you've seen your religion get moved to the margin. So what I'm telling you is, if you only see the marginalization, but you don't see the remnant, you'll get bitter and angry, and you'll think someone's trying to steal your church because they're playing different music and using different Bibles and dressing differently and using those stupid graphics. That's not inspired. <laughs> and, and you'll think that because your traditional expressions of religion have been marginalized, that your church is dying. The opposite is true. Jesus is saving your church. But he's got to use a remnant to do it. Because <laughs> the people who are guarding the establishment are already dead. They just don't know it. So it's important that you see if you lose something in the center, God is doing something else in the margins. And if you're under 30... <laughs> If you're between 30 and 50, I don't know what you are, but <laughs> except smarter than me. But if you're, if you're under 30, then your tendency is to, uh, is to just see the movement that God's putting together and not see the marginalization. And if that's what ha happens, then you'll become impatient you'll become cynical with tradition. You can't grieve with those who laid the track for you. And so the church cannot be one. It is essential that we understand both of these things are happening at the same time. In the Bible, the word that is used for this is exile. So we can be clear about exile. Exile is not captivity. Exile is relocation. When nations were moved into exile, they were scooped up and moved to a foreign land. Stay with me. They were free to practice any religion they wanted to practice. They just couldn't enforce it on the dominant culture. So rather than kill you, the conquered foe, they moved you off to a foreign land and surrounded you with citizens from their own culture. 
You say, well, why is this such a big deal? Because the threat in exile is not persecution. The threat is assimilation. It's not that you can't practice your faith. It's that it's not relevant anymore. That's a different problem than persecution. So you can be free, totally free, in a land that is not your land, but after a while, you will look around you and you will slowly learn the systems and the values and the practices and you'll start to worship the deities that are in the dominant culture. Nobody's making you do this, but you're surrounded by it. They're the ones giving you the news. They're writing every blog, every advertisement. Everything is controlled by the dominant culture. And no one is saying you have to believe this, but you're breathing it. And so you learn it instinctively as if there's no other way. It's common sense to you, but it's different from the way of Yahweh. That is the challenge of exile. So I'm reading the prophet Habakkuk. Is it Habakkuk or Habakkuk? Gosh, I never know. People get degrees in this, and I, I, I don't know. Steve Lennox said to me one time, just whatever you say it is, just say it boldly, and everybody else will go, gosh, I thought it was Habakkuk, but he looked so confident. So if you want to call him Augustine, call him Augustine, not Augustine. Just look confident when you say it. And every smart person will go, gosh, I just wasted my money. I thought it was August, Augustine. So I'm reading Habakkuk. And Habakkuk is having an argument with God. He looks around him and he sees something remarkably similar to ISIS called the Babylonians. They are notorious for their cruelty. They're impaling children on spears and beheading people in broad daylight. The nations are terrified by Babylon. He looks around him and he sees all of the traditional institutions are crumbling. He looks inside the temple and he sees even the most devout are not as devout as they used to be. He sees the greed and the oppression of people who have almost nothing. And he goes to God one day and he says, how long do I have to pray about this? And you do not do anything to stop this. And God's response is something like, I know what is happening and I'm allowing it. So Habakkuk starts to argue with God and God is silent. And it sounds for a moment as if Habakkuk is winning the argument. You ever had one of those? I think I beat him today. <laughs> He's reloading. And in the silence, Habakkuk is smart enough to stay in the argument doesn't walk away. And this is what he says after he finishes his rant. He says, 
I will station myself on the rampart. I will go up to the wall and I will wait to see what Yahweh says to me and what I am to say in return. And the rest of that book compresses what Yahweh says to him, which I'll break down into just language that's our vernacular. Here's basically what he says. The times are changing before your eyes. You must not despair. And these are your times. These are not somebody else's times. These are your times. Translated, this isn't your fault, but you're still responsible. This is your day. So stay in the struggle. You'll have to adjust. Things will be different. But you must lead your culture, never follow it. Because when you chase something, you're irrelevant. So you must live boldly and faithfully and differently from your day. Lead, don't follow. And four, never give up hope. Because even though you can't see it, God is active. He is working too. Not only on the margins, but through the margins to people in the dominant culture. That's the word of Yahweh. Now, so we can be clear about this. Just this exile thing, because I know it kind of freaks some of you out, man. This is not what you wanted. Be clear about this. When God's people are put into exile in the Bible, they are never sent there by society. They are sent there by God himself. So, so you don't feel like the world is pushing you out. It might actually be God who is relocating you because historically in the Old Testament, when God's people went into exile, two things always happened. One of them is he cured them of their idolatry. They became monotheists again when they were in exile. Because while they were succeeding in the dominant culture, they had their own agendas and these belief systems and these practices and these traditions, these things that worked, began to grow on them. And they calcified and they became gods. And so God put them into exile so they would be left with nothing but Yahweh. And the second thing that happens in exile is Israel rediscovers her mission. She forgot who she was. She forgot why she was made. And she became like the people she was trying to save. So the power of exile is that it starts to take away the idols that have cropped up. And in exile, the church rediscovers her mission again.
Now, when we get moved out, the twin temptations we always face is either assimilation, which is to say, I will do anything it takes to stay relevant, so I'm going to chase the culture. I'm going to find what's popular and attach a little Jesus thing to it, and that's how I'm going to reach the world. It's this, this striving to stay relevant, and we become assimilated. The other temptation is disengagement. It's despair. It's to cloister on the margins and just say, forget it. That is not my problem anymore. It's to withdraw and build our own religious empire. Those are the two temptations that we face. But there are things that happen to the dominant culture too. One of them is they lose the transcendent. Now that religion has been moved to the margins, watch what happens to our culture. It's like the heavens get closed. There are no miracles, baby. There is no more mystery. We got this. And if we don't, we're done. And so the answers get shallow and people get restless, and therein lies your opportunity to reach them. Here's my point. You preach to both, but they're different messages. Totally different messages. This one here, to the dominant culture, is Mars Hill. This one here is the Sermon on the Mount. Totally different culture. When we're moved to the margins, everything changes. Suddenly, the most important churches are not the largest ones. It's the ones making the best disciples. Suddenly, it's not the professional ministers who are the most valuable players. It's the laity already embedded in places where they can change their part of the world. Suddenly, the most valuable churches are those who have a touch of the supernatural because the heavens are closed. There is no miracle. And somebody who knows how to get hold of God is valuable to that culture. I think the biggest change in exile is in preaching, which is why you're here. And I think the change is between two kinds of preaching. One, I'm going to use this smart board. Poorly, but I'm going to do it. One of them I'm going to call attractional. And the other one, I'm going to call catalytic. Attractional preaching seeks to reach out into the community and get people to come and hear the sermon. So the purpose is to convert people or persuade them to believe something they did not believe before the service started. Attract them. Persuade them. It focuses heavily 
on prescriptive preaching, which tells people this is the problem and this is what we must do to fix the problem. Repent and turn from your ways for the kingdom of heaven is coming, John the Baptist. That ain't bad, you gotta admit. That's good company. Are you with me? So the idea here is to try and bring people in to hear the sermon, to say something that is memorable, sticky, if you will, take home, if you will, in order to change the way that they're thinking. And the goal of this is the testimony of a changed life. Now understand, this is a marvelous model so long as you're close to the center. But when you can no longer depend on tacit or residual knowledge of God, yeah, when 40% of the people under age 35 claim no religious affiliation, which is the case today, by the way, then situations have changed and perhaps another model is necessary. So I'm calling it catalytic. Here's how catalytic works. I got a friend who's into physics. He's a physicist. And so I'm telling him what I want to say. And he says, it sounds to me like what you need is nuclear energy. I said, you mean an atomic bomb? <laughs> yeah. I said, how can we make one? <laughs> awful. He says, no, let me tell you how this works. There's a thing called a thing called a catalyst. A catalyst is added to a substance, and whenever a catalyst hits a substance, it causes the substance to multiply its energy, force, and power exponentially. So it works like this. Uranium-235, what it is, it has, think, 92 protons and 143 neutrons. In fact, I know that's what it is because I memorized it. Because <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I ain't smart, but I have smart friends. <laughs> and I have a good memory. <laughs> I just tell them, no, you guys go to school and tell me. <laughs> so that's 235, but watch this. When you take a single neutron and you add it to the nucleus U-235 and it becomes U-236, instantly that nucleus divides into two. And when it divides, it Let's go of a burst of energy. And not only that, but it creates three more neutrons that shoot off and each one hits another nucleus. And when it hits it, that nucleus divides. And when it divides, it creates three more neutrons that shoot off. And this is happening in milliseconds. And so we go from one neutron to three neutrons to nine neutrons to 27 neutrons to just it's exponential. So it started to change the way I'm starting to think about preaching. Not done with this, but you'll, you can fix it for me. 
three components. There's a preacher, there's a gospel, there's a church. Attractional preaching attempts to take people from the world and bring them through the church to hear the message and they end up attaching to the preacher. Catalytic preaching starts with the preacher and passes his passion through the gospel and embeds it in the church. And as he does this, the power and force of his sermon is multiplied exponentially. So the target of catalytic preaching is not to gather people, it's to send them. In catalytic preaching, a preacher is not known by his sermon. He's known by the effect of his sermon on the church. In catalytic preaching, we don't preach prescriptively, do this and do this. We preach descriptively. This is the kingdom of God. And we try to mobilize these people to live out the kingdom of God. So the idea in catalytic preaching is not to say something memorable. It's to say something viral. Something that can be heard and then internalized and then reconfigured to fit that person's own language so they end up saying it and they think it was them. Doctor told me one time, he said when a virus attaches itself to a cell, it asks two questions. The first one is, will you let me in? And if the cell opens itself up and lets the virus in, the second question is, will you reproduce me? And when the healthy cell begins to reproduce the virus, it is actually creating the thing that overtakes it. But the key is to let the cell do the work, not the virus. Your preaching, my preaching, has to become more viral than it is memorable. So we don't have to be super great preachers. We just have to have a big gospel. And we have to embed that gospel into a body of believers who are committed to live in shared practices the expression of that gospel in society. That's what's powerful in exile, you guys. It's not a preacher. It's not a sermon. Newsflash. When 40% of the 35-year-olds don't have a religious affiliation, don't be offended. They don't want to hear you preach. Me either. 
but they go to work every day with people who are inside of your church. And if you can get the gospel inside those people in a way that they'll hold it and it becomes their own and they will go out and live that gospel in front of the public, that 40% don't have a chance. They have to hear the gospel, but they'll hear it in the shared practices, the corporate witness of one body doing the same thing over a city. Now, we did a thing about a year ago called Sheep to Shepherd. I won't bore you with these stories, but this one I got to tell you. At the end of this thing, we talked about what it means to be shepherds of the places where we work, and we ask people, if you want to be a shepherd, not just the leader, but a shepherd, we'd love for you to come on the platform, and we'd love for you to just commit your life to being a shepherd in the places where you work. 388 people went up on the platform. We dug out the old discipline and said, there's got to be a consecration vow somewhere in here. And there was. And we found it and we read it to them and we got them to say, I will commit to these things. And we had no idea. That simple, silly little idea started to permeate into the church. And when the church heard the idea, the church was the sermon. Superintendent of schools took all the notes, went back, typed them up, put his name on them, and handed them to his principals. Pretty soon I have principals coming up in Marion saying, man, we got this really great thing. And they're quoting me. And they're like, you should learn this stuff. <laughs> Probably I should. I was doing a session for a group of uh, business guys. There was 300 administrators in the room. And the CEO had heard the whole sheep to shepherd thing. And I was about 10 minutes in. And right in the middle of my speech, never happened before. He's got his hand up in the front row. I went, what? He goes, uh. Can I say something? I was like, dude, it's your company. It's your rodeo, man. Yeah, if you want to say something. He jumps up and he goes, what he's saying is true. And our problem is we don't know our people. How can we help our people if we don't know our people? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a whole bunch of money into an account and I'm going to let all of our facilities tap into that money and start helping people who have problems in your facilities. Your job is to find out what they need, but you can't ask them. You have to find it from some. He's going on a whole spiel, and there's people who work for him are taking notes thinking, what are we going to do? There's going to be an account? What? He's just declaring ex cathedra what he's going to do. He's taking a message, and he's pushing it out into the public. And pretty soon... It isn't the sermon, it's the people. The power, the power of preaching in exile is not the sermon, it's the people. We have to convince the people. Six minutes. Right? I have six minutes? I don't have six minutes? Let's pray, Jesus. Okay, I'm going to take five minutes. <laughs> I just blew one right there, daggummit. Here's a couple things I think will help us 
first of all, all day tomorrow, you guys, is about this. People tomorrow are going to talk to you about, so what is the gospel? And how do you take something that you're preaching and get the whole church to do it? They're going to talk about how you take care of this person. Aaron's going to talk about what kind of a person is this that actually writes messages. And so is Lenny. The whole day tomorrow is talking about how you can write stuff and say things. Because you can't just say the same things better. You have to say different things. And that's my first point. The first big point I want to focus on is this right, right here. For more powerful preaching, we have to rediscover the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Can I remind you that the first time the word is used, it was used by Isaiah, not by Jesus. And the gospel was not Jesus died for your sins. No, no, in Isaiah, the gospel is your God reigns. Here comes your God. That's the gospel. So the gospel is for the church. And it's time that we have a gospel again that has the power to change things. Okay, we know our sins can be forgiven. Can we have something else? Can we have our lives actually changed? I have a friend who's a mathematician. He said, you know what an extraneous answer is in math? I said, of course not. I don't know anything. He says, an extraneous answer in math, listen to this, you'll love it. He says, an extraneous answer in math is when you come up with an answer and the answer is right, and all of the math proves it, but it does not satisfy the question. We have an extraneous gospel. Because people know that their city is broken. And they know that habits are hard to break. They know that the relationships are broken. And we can't just say you can be forgiven. We have to tell them they can be different. We got to give them something that can turn water into wine, something that can raise the dead, something that can split the Red Sea, something that can open the womb of a barren woman and give birth to a child, virgin birth to a child. We need that kind of power in our gospel again. We have to tell people that God can do things you can't explain. I said to a chemist in my church, how do you turn water into wine? He said, chemically, you can't. I said, it happened. <laughs> At least once. So we need a gospel again that talks about transformation, mystery, miracle. And we need a gospel that is bold in the city, that doesn't just transform an individual's life. It transforms an entire neighborhood. It changes social structures and systems and prejudices and traditions. We need a gospel that can change that. Two minutes. Second, preach to the choir. Everything you've heard so far about preaching is how to reach the lost. I'm telling you, some of them are in your church and they think they're saved. Preach to the choir. And when they get genuinely transformed, that sermon will catalyze. It will multiply in that life. Your best advertisement 
is a Christian who just got saved. And third, engage the whole church. Don't have sermons about one thing and then classes about one thing and meetings about something else. Get all of the gears doing the same thing. You'll learn how to do that tomorrow. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the power of God under salvation, you guys. You let that thing out of the cage, it'll flat blow up. My first church had 20 people in it. It was 145 years old. Had all sorts of problems. We couldn't sing. We could hardly meet. Could hardly pay the bills. We stacked the bills up and paid the most overdue ones first. They turned off my gas and I sat with gloves on in the winter and turned pages in order to study for sermons because we had no money. Pitiful little church, I thought, until I heard that it was part of a much bigger history. They told me back in 1950, they picked up that church and moved it back 50 feet in order to put it on a new foundation. And when they did, they found a tunnel. Behind the pulpit was a trap door. In that tunnel, they found chains and carvings that were left by former slaves. They funneled them literally under the street into a store that used to be across the street. They got them their last goods and sent them on their way to Canada. You notice I'm talking about the church. I can't remember the preacher's name. And they won't remember mine ever. But gosh, I hope they remember this church. And I hope they remember yours. And the power that you unleashed on those people. Would you bow your heads? This evening I told you that you have a call to preach. You were called to the pulpit. Can I get you to take a call to the wall? What that means is, can I get you to go back to your offices when this conference is over, close the door, don't let anyone in, and listen to God for as long as it takes until you have a clear sense of what he wants for your church in exile. Think about it. If you'll do it, would you join me by standing? Oh, Jesus, I imagine a day when neighborhoods and cities are changed, not by a man or a woman who's a great preacher, but by a gospel that is powerful and unleashed and embedded in a people. A critical mass. And may it grow exponentially. 
In Jesus' name, let the church say.